You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, uh, about 150 years ago, there was a 17-year-old kid named Hudson Taylor. And like many 17-year-old kids nowadays, he was a constantly swearing, skeptical, unbelieving non-Christian. And this 17-year-old skeptic was turned off by what he called, quote, the inconsistencies of the Christian people. He said Christians claim to believe the Bible, but, quote, were content to live just as they would if there was no such book. And Hudson Taylor's uh, mother and sister who were Christians earnestly pled to God for their son and brother's salvation. And it was in June of 1849, one month after uh, his mom and sister prayed for him daily, that Hudson Taylor came upon this small gospel tract, this little booklet called It Is Finished. And he learned about the complete provision of Jesus Christ to pay for all his sins on the cross. And it was at the moment that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And upon becoming a Christian, Hudson was on fire. He quickly had missions put on his heart by God. He became famous later for saying, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. And Hudson started saving every spare dollar he had so he could travel as a missionary to an unreached people group in China. Even though it was a closed country in the middle of a full-out rebellion, that did not sway Hudson. He said the Great Commission was urgent, and he was going to go. And while he saved money and prepared to go to China, studied the language, he spent his time as a self-appointed medical missionary in the slums of England, going up and down the streets, helping the poor, caring for the abused, and sharing the gospel. And he eventually did sail to China at 21 years old, and he wrote before he left, all the responsibilities and results of this mission rest with God. My responsibility is to obey and to follow Him. His responsibility is to direct, care for, and guide me. Sounds optimistic, but once Hudson Taylor actually reached China, reality set in very quickly. This 21-year-old eventually became a middle-aged man who was miserable, homesick, and suffered from extreme headaches. He became a laughingstock to the Chinese people. They nicknamed him the Black Devil because he constantly wore a black overcoat. How's that for a missionary? The people you're trying to reach call you the Black Devil. Exhausted and depressed, he confessed at one point that his wife's love was the only thing that stood between him and suicide. But then his wife died, and four of his eight children along with her. And four of his eight children, when they died, they all died before the age of 10 years old. And so with almost no converts... After seven years of painstaking work, Hudson had a physical and mental breakdown, and he retreated home to his country of England. But it was actually while in England, in this intermediary period after he came back from China, he went to a church gathering on a Sunday morning, similar to this one. And it was there that he broke down weeping. He wrote, quote, 
that he was unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own salvation and security while millions were perishing from lack of knowledge of Christ. And he said it was that day at that church he surrendered his life back to God. And he went back to China at 33 years old with a fire in his eyes. And when he got back, though, ministry was still hard. He would eventually write to his friend, we have 87 cents and all the promises of God. And it was after 51 years of service in China that Hudson Taylor died, having led some estimates of 25 to 35,000 people to, to Jesus Christ in China. He baptized 50,000 people. And today, some 1,600 missionaries continue Hudson's work in China. When Hudson Taylor died, there were 100,000 Christians in China. Today, there are some 150 million Christians in China. Before he, wrote, he died, Hudson Taylor wrote, There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Second, it is difficult. And then, third, it is done. Well, I actually read that Hudson Taylor was inspired by the person of Moses in the Old Testament. And I think Moses would have said the same thing at the end of his life. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. Then it's done. And this morning, we find Moses in stage one, impossible. And like God did with Hudson Taylor, like God did with Moses, God wants to use your life for what seems like impossible right now. And we saw last week, if you were here, you can watch the message online uh, later on. We saw last week the first two points. God wants to provide for you like he provided for Moses through the Nile, through the hand of, of Pharaoh, trying to kill him. He also, second, wants to forgive you and redeem you like he did Moses. We covered those two points last week. This week we're going to see the third and fourth point. that God wants to shape and mold you into the image of Christ. And then fourthly, he wants to use you for more than you can even possibly dream that he would use you to do. Let's start with this third point as we pick up. God wants to mold you. As we pick up in Exodus 2.15, we're, we're, we're basically in the middle of the fugitive part two. Or maybe I guess you could say the prequel to the fugitive, except Moses is the fugitive on the run. Moses has killed a man. Pharaoh's after Moses' life again. This time he's just 40 years old, not a baby. And so, verse 15, when Moses heard, or when Pharaoh heard that Moses had killed this Egyptian slave master, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So, Moses flees th some 300 miles from Egypt to Midian. That would be basically like you running from Baltimore to Hartford, Connecticut. That's not a small amount of territory. It's great this time of year, though. Verse 15, he sits by a well. And I, you might be re this might be reading in the text a little bit, but I just imagine his hand is on his face and he is weeping because he has lost everything that made up his first 40 years of life. A couple of days ago, he was living comfortably in a palace and now he is nothing in the wilderness by a well. Well, like we see often in the Bible, it's at rock bottom that we often meet the rock of ages. I've had a moment like this in my life where I felt like I was at a well, weeping, wondering his life worth living. Well, Jesus tends to meet people by the well when they're suffering, doesn't he? 
Verse 16. The priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Verse 17. Then these shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. There's that compassion of Moses again, right? Even at rock bottom, Moses cannot stand with injustice. Chapter 2, we saw there was a Hebrew slave master, uh, Israel, uh, Egyptian slave master beating up an a, a Israeli slave. And Moses gets in the middle and kills the Egyptian slave master because he hates injustice that much. Well, this time, some shepherds come to a well and are telling these women, go away, we're going to feed our flock, you can come after us. I mean, these are probably tough guys. Shepherds killed lions and bears with staffs and rocks for a living. But Moses isn't shook by them. Moses comes up to them and says, you don't want this smoke. They were here first. You don't, like, Moses is not the guy you want to mess with at the bar. You don't want to get in his face because he will throw hands. So he helps these women. He's making progress, though. He doesn't kill anyone this time. Good job, Moses. Verse 18. When these women who had fed their, uh, their flocks at the well brought their flocks back home, they came to the father, Raul, who said, How is it that you have come so soon today? Like, this is way faster than usual. And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now, in this day and age, men didn't water animals or water the flock. This was considered woman's work. If you go to many places in the world, this is still considered woman's work. And so this father is like, wait, a man protected you and you just left him there? Like, that sounds like a keeper, guys. <laughs> and wait, he watered your flocks too? You better go get that man. Like, you aren't going to find that on eHarmony. Go back to the well, get that man. The best men you're going to find are probably at the well, at the church. I'm just saying. Verse 20. The, the father said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may have a meal with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. He gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Moses, upon really messing up, doing a crime that would get him in jail for the rest of his life in, in America. He commits manslaughter. God pulls him then out of what is comfortable in Egypt to what is uncomfortable, sojourning in the wilderness. And this is so pivotal in Moses' life, he names his son after this, this season of his life. And we need to be careful not to over-allegorize here, but I think God puts this scripture in here for a reason, because he wants to show us that like Moses... God wants to mold you in the wilderness. If you want a fun study for your personal devotional time, study the idea of the wilderness in the scriptures. The wilderness in the Bible is a place where people meet with God. It's in the wilderness that Jacob saw the stairway to heaven. It's in the wilderness, in the desert, at his breaking point, that Elijah hears the still, small voice of God. It's in the wilderness where John the Baptist preaches repentance. It's in the wilderness in Matthew 3 where Jesus wins victory over the devil and succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. It's in the wilderness that Saul of Tarsus repented and wrestled over the Old Testament scriptures and finds Christ there and gives his life to the mission of God. It's in the wilderness that God says to Hosea, I will draw you into the desert, I will draw you into the wilderness, and there you will stop calling me master and you will start calling me husband. It's in the wilderness where there's this shift in our lives where 
God goes from the guy who makes the rules, he's the boss, he tells me what I have to do and I have to do it to, he loves me, he made me, he's all I need, and I love him back. And (laughs) this idea of wilderness tends to create a massive problem for Western evangelicals who view the desert or the wilderness or any sort of discomfort as some sort of curse by God. Something that needs to be immediately fixed and repaired. No, it's in the wilderness. It's in these dark nights of the soul when we find the compassion and care that God really has for us. When we were too distracted by the trinkets in the palace, we didn't see it. Here you have a prince of Egypt who's probably for the first time wondering, where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? What's going to happen to me next? I don't know what my future holds. He said everything he's loved, his family, his stuff taken from him because of his own sin, and yet it's the grace of God here in the wilderness where Moses finds a home, he finds a wife, he has a son, he has a family. I mean, the kindness of God, even in the wilderness, is stunning. And maybe this morning, like Moses, you're in a wilderness season today. You feel like you're wandering through a dead-end job or a 15-year residency. At least it feels like it. Maybe you're barely hanging on this morning because you're in a new city and mom and dad are 100 miles away. Maybe 1,000 miles away. Maybe you left all your college friends and you don't have any friends in Baltimore. Maybe you're parched in the desert of this long-distance relationship. Is there anything worse than a long-distance relationship? I'm pretty sure not. That is the wilderness. Amen, brothers and sisters. When are we going to be together, God? You're asking. Zoom is not cutting it. Maybe like Moses, you've had what you love just snatched from you by God. Maybe your kids dawned and grew up and did what they were supposed to do, and now they're in college, or they're working, or they're in another state, and you're like, what do I do with my life now? I'm an empty nester. And Exodus 2 is an encouragement to you that sometimes when you find yourself in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but really you've been planted. When you think you've been buried, God says, no, you've been planted and something's about to grow. And in order for God to mold you, first he needs to melt you. And this is why the book of James says over and over again, rejoice in trials, rejoice in wilderness moments. This is why Paul and Silas in Acts 16 are being beaten and imprisoned. And the guards are like, why are you rejoicing? Why are you laughing? Why are you smiling? Why are you singing? I mean, the entire night in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are recording, now that's what I call music, gospel edition. Throughout the night. I mean, they're recording an album. Why? Because they know that this wilderness, this trial, this prison is forming something in them and around them that the palace can't. A.W. Tozer said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Moses thought he lost everything, but God had him right where he wanted him. In the same way, friend, God has you right where he wants you to do what he wants to do through you. And I I don't know about you, but I praise God looking back for the wilderness seasons of my life where I lost everything because it awoke me from my stupor. It helped me realize that success or girls or stuff isn't going to satisfy my soul. And God ripped those from me, and I saw that he was enough. 
And do you know that's actually what fasting is? Fasting is a planned wilderness. It's weaning ourselves away from the the pleasures of this world to say, God, I want to just need you. I I want to just want you. This is why Jesus says, you will fast in the Gospels to his followers. So we're supposed to do it. God wants to mold you in the wilderness, not just in the wilderness, but in the waiting. The book of Acts tells us that Moses spent 40 years waiting in the wilderness. I mean, could you? (laughs) That is a long time to wait. I struggle 15 minutes from my phone to upgrade to iOS 17. (laughs) I cannot imagine 40 years waiting in the wilderness. Could you imagine God being like, I want to do something incredible in your life in 40 years? Okay, what do you want me to do now? Shepherd. I mean, if you thought your PhD program was long, I mean, Moses went through a long PhD process. Do you know he spent two years of preparation for every one year of ministry? And I think, honestly, I think it's one of the tragedies of our age that unlike Moses, men can quickly jump into pastoral ministry without a wilderness or a waiting. That physicians of the body have to wait longer and train harder than physicians of the soul when the soul is much more valuable to God than the body. And I want to say to you, if you have aspirations for leadership, ministry leadership or any type of leadership, maybe you're an RCC Institute being developed to lead in this church, maybe one day you hope to be a pastor, maybe you want to be a CEO or on a board or something like that, a professor. Here's something we learned from Moses. Preparation time is not wasted time. Preparation time is not wasted time. You know, Abraham Lincoln, the great president, voted as the best president of all time in a recent poll I saw. He said, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend the first four hours sharpening my axe. But we just want to go cutting with a blunt axe. God says, no, get to sharpening. And it was those 40 years for Moses of getting up early when no one was watching, feeding, filling the feeding trough for the sheep, Smelly, dirty work, chasing after the wandering sheep who are stubborn, protecting the flock from the wolves in the middle of nowhere that actually prepared Moses to become Moses. You know, a commentator I read said that there are three experiences that Moses experienced in the wilderness and in the waiting that prepared him to lead the Israelites. First, by waiting in the wilderness, he learned to rely on God alone. By having a family, he learned to lead and guide and discipline those whom he loved. And thirdly, by working as a shepherd in Midian, he developed the skills and patience that would enable him to shepherd a much larger flock, the flock of God, the Israelites. And those are some stubborn sheep, man. Actually, if you read Psalm 77, 20, it says that God led Israel like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And it seems that even the psalmist is saying to us that Moses learning to skillfully shepherd a flock that no one seemed to care about or no one seemed to know about, prepared them to lead God's flock that everyone seemed to know about and care about. Preparation time is not wasted time. Maybe you're waiting this morning. You're waiting for your diploma. You're waiting for your ministry. You're waiting for a promotion. For your boss to notice how hard you're working. Maybe you're waiting for a chance to stand on a stage. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse or even a friend. 
or a child, maybe for that child to grow up. I'm sure Moses in this time of his life is like, God, I was a prince, and now all you want me to do is wait here and look after some sheep for 40 years. Maybe this morning you're saying something similar. All you want me to do right now is wait and study, God. All you want me to do right now is to be a good church member. All you want me to do right now is to change diapers and wash dishes. Wait, all you want me to do right now is to be faithful at this entry-level job. That this is somehow meaningful to you. God says, yeah. Let's start with that. Let's start like Jesus started, where he waited 30 years and worked as a construction worker for 30 years before he began his ministry. Let's start like Moses, who spent 40 years taking care of some sheep before he shepherded God's flock. If you're going to follow them, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to follow him in the waiting and the preparing. And then let God do the molding. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, I don't mind waiting. I got Netflix. I got Candy Crush. I'm like a level 77. What do you mean? Come on. Pokemon Go. I just caught a Gyarados. I don't mind waiting. How do I know that? I, my kids, okay? And me, me a little bit, all right? <laughs> I don't mind waiting. I'm chilling. But waiting and watching Netflix isn't preparing you for anything other than doing nothing. And God has nothing good to say to us about laziness. Just read the Proverbs. God tends to call people to big things who are busy. God calls busy people. I mean, Gideon was busy threshing grain when God called him in Judges 6. Samuel was busy serving faithfully in the tabernacle before God called him to be a prophet in 1 Samuel 3. David was busy caring for sheep like Moses was before God appointed him as king in 1 Samuel 17. Elijah was busy plowing a field. Four of the apostles were busy taking care of their fishing business. Get busy being faithful in the waiting, and God will get busy using you eventually. You want God to give you a spouse? Good. Start now by being an amazing friend and church member. And that'll prepare you to be a great spouse. You want God to give you more money. You don't like your financial situation right now. Great. Start now by being faithful with the money you have. Give 10% of it to the local church. Save 10% of it. And then spend the rest faithfully. Be a good steward. And I found if you do that, God always tends to give you a ton more. If you want God to give you and call you to something big, be faithful with the little he's given you right now. Go bring people a meal. Go become a member of a local church. Go serve somebody when no one's watching. Be a part of a gospel community and care for somebody. Be faithful in the little, and God will hand you much. To close this point, there's a poet named Russell Kelfer who put this concept so beautifully in a poem called Wait. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Maybe you're in a waiting season. I pray this ministers to your soul. He says, oh, this is so good. You promised, dear Lord, that if we believe, we need but ask, and we shall receive. And Lord, I've been asking, and this is my cry. I'm weary of asking. I need a reply. Then quietly, softly, I learned of my fate. As my master replied again, wait. So I slumped in my chair, defeated and taught, and grumbled to God. So I'm waiting for what? 
He seemed then to kneel, and his eyes met with mine, and he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens and darken the sun. I could raise the dead and cause mountains to run. I could give you all you seek, and pleased you would be. You'd have what you want, but you wouldn't know me. You'd, know the, you'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power that I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through clouds of despair. You'd not learn to trust just by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence are all you can see. You'd never experience the fullness of love when the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. You would know that I give and I save for a start, but you'd know not the depth of the beat of my heart. The glow of my comfort late into the night, the faith that I give when you walk without sight, the depth that's beyond getting just what you ask from an infinite God who makes what you have last. You'd never know should your pain quickly flee, what it means that my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dearest dreams overnight would come true, but oh, the loss if you miss what I'm doing in you. So be silent, my child, and in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to truly know me. And though off my answers seem terribly late, My most precious answer of all is still, wait. Like Moses, God wants to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ through not giving you what you want, but by taking you into the wilderness and asking you to wait and learning he's enough. Fourth point. We saw first, God wants to provide for you. He wants to protect you. Namely, in Christ. He wants to forgive you like he forgave and redeemed Moses. And he did that for us through Christ. He wants to mold you into the image of Christ. He does that through the wilderness and the waiting of our lives. And finally, we see he wants to use you. Oh, this is so good. He wants to use you, friend, for something spectacular. Now, these next few verses are literally the fulcrum on which the book of Exodus completely shifts. At this point, it's been all dread, all fear, all terror, all sin, all sadness. And it's, at this point, only been all human beings. We've only seen characters like Moses and Pharaoh and Egypt and Pharaoh's daughter and Moses' mom. Do you know who's been absent from Exodus so far? The main character, God. God has not yet presented himself. He has not introduced himself. He has not yet spoken We have seen nothing of God except in the background, sovereignly moving all the pieces together, and yet today, he speaks. And what does he speak? That he wants to use you. How does he want to use you? Well, there's a process here. The first part of the process is God hears. Look at verse 23. God hears Israel's cries. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So this means the old Pharaoh is dead which also means the statute of limitations against Moses' case have exceeded, and and essentially, he can't be prosecuted anymore. He's safe. Moses can go back to Egypt. And verse 23 says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So despite the change of rulers in Egypt, the slavery in Egypt is still intense. Israel is still suffering and God is not unaware of their cries. He hears them, just like we hear these. And notice two truths about how God hears their cry. God hears by feeling our pain and remembering his covenant. That's how God hears, by feeling our pain and remembering his covenant. First, God feels our pain as he hears. Notice how God responds to Israel's pain. Verse 24, it says, God heard their groaning. Verse 25, it says, God saw. It also says, God knew about their oppression. What does this mean? It means he was concerned. He heard, he saw, he knew. Psalm 34, 15 says that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And so when the scriptures say that God knew about their pain, it means much more than awareness. Like I could sit here and tell you, I intellectually know that it's painful to lose a child. You might know it's painful to lose a child. Intellectually, right? But this more so emphasizes the experiential pain that God has as he hears us cry. This word know in the Hebrew is the same word used to describe intimacy between a husband and a wife in the Old Testament. To know your wife is the same way God would describe, I know your pain. The sense here is God was feeling what the Israelites were feeling as they wept. He was intimately aware of their agony. Genesis 6.6 tells us that God's heart can be filled with pain. What a crazy thought. You know, Isaiah 63.9 says that when God's people are suffering, he suffers with them. He chooses to suffer with them. God knows, God sees, God feels with you. And then this causes him to act. That's a comforting thought. God feels what you're feeling, and then he remembers his covenant. That's the next part of him hearing. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. You might be new to the church. I'm like, what's a covenant? It's what you do when you get married. I'm promising to love you forever. And God said to Israel, God says to his people, I promise to love you and look out for you forever. Now, when it says that God remembered his promise to love his people forever, this doesn't mean like God forgot. This isn't like an extended warranty and God's like, oh, I did promise you five years of coverage and I, I totally lost track of time. Uh, I, yeah, I'll look, I'll look out for you. Thanks for reminding me. This more so means that God was not distracted, that he was laser focused on fulfilling his covenant. He didn't forget that he made a promise to Israel that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And here they find themselves enslaved in Egypt with no sons. And in the same way, God has made a covenant with you if you're in Christ. To prom he promised to love and protect and look after you forever. And he's not so distracted with the planet Mars or with American politics that he's forgotten about your pain. He hears your pain just like Israel was heard by God. Now, if the Jew in the Old Testament can be comforted by this fact, how much more can the Christian after the cross... Brother or sister in Christ, do you hear Jesus Christ weeping at Calvary? Do you see him crying out, screaming because of the pain, both physical and spiritual? Do you, do you hear him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except no one listened. Even God turned his face away. In his moment of greatest need, 
At his place of deepest pain, when Jesus needed a rescuer more than ever, God turned from his son. Why? And this is what captured Hudson Taylor's heart. Because at Golgotha, God was turning away from Jesus' pain so he could forever rescue you from your pain. He treated Jesus the way you deserve to be treated so he could treat us the way Jesus deserved to be treated. And Jesus willingly went there. He was willing to be ignored. He was willing to be treated as though he was outside of God's covenant so that through faith in him, you could be brought into it. And if Israel can find hope suffering in Egypt because of God's Old Testament covenant, how much more can we find hope that when we cry, Jesus hears, Jesus knows. Hebrews says that he experienced every part of pain that we've experienced, and he steps in to rescue. He did once and for all at the cross, and he will step in again at the end of time and take all this pain and bring us home. Peter says in 2 Peter, if the Old Testament promises and covenants were good, how much more precious are God's promises to us? And the cross is God's receipt that your redemption is secure. And the resurrection is proof that even if you're crying today, like Israel in this text, tomorrow you're going to be singing. You're going to be dancing your way across the Red Sea to the promised land because of Christ. He hears, he remembers this covenant. And again, this is why the wilderness and the waiting can be so formative for us because it's in the pain, it's in the suffering that God allows us to go through that we learn to rejoice in these simple truths like God loves me, like he's covenanted with me. You see what I've done? But he loves me anyway. It's in the wilderness and the waiting that we say like, I should be in hell right now. Instead, I'm going to go to heaven. And you still want to use me? Are you kidding me? It's those moments that we need, the wilderness and the waiting, because we remember his covenant, and he remembers his covenant with us. You begin to set your affections on these promises. So God hears first. He feels our pain. He remembers his covenant, and then God sends. Now, where do you think God's going to send Moses? Any guesses? Now, you might be asking this morning, okay, God's provided for me. He's forgiven me. He's molded me. He wants to send me. Where does he want to send me? You want to know where God is sending you. God is sending you where the world is weeping. God is sending where the world is weeping. When the world rushes out, the church of Jesus Christ is called to rush in. Like with Moses, God, he was provided for, he was forgiven, he was molded in the wilderness and the waiting, and God says, I've heard my people crying, that's where you're going. Where God hears people weeping, that's where God's heart is sending. And this, we saw this in Christ, right? That Jesus goes to the hard places and we follow him there. This is why Paul went to the city centers in the ancient world, the places that were known for, like, the, the cities that Paul went to would have made your grandma gasp in terror. They, they worshiped idols. They're, some of these cities that Paul went to, he gave his life to, their distinguishing feature was prostitutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these were cities that were known to torture and crucify Christians. Paul's like, yeah, let's go. God's sending us there. 
This is why when Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, to a place that was called the gates of hell, a place an Old Testament Jew would never step foot near, that would made him unclean, Jesus stands at this place where uh, pagans sacrifice children to their pagan gods. And he stands at this place called the gates of hell, and he says, even this place won't stand against the advance of my church. Meaning, that's where you're going, to places like this. And they'll fall to my gospel. This is why God sent Jonah to the bloodthirsty city of Nineveh. I want you to go to that place, that broken, lost city. And yet so many Christians today are just like Jonah. We run the opposite direction. We look at the hard places of the world, the places that are full of weeping and evil, and say, not me, God. You've forsaken that city. And it bothers, me, uh, it bothers me so much that the most common response I get from Christians when I tell them I planted a church in Baltimore with a team is, why in the world would you ever go there? I hope you brought a gun. They, they really need a Republican in that place. And I won't step foot until they have a Republican mayor. God's forsaken that city, they would say. Uh, sure, they'll come for an Orioles game or a five-star meal, or Hamilton off-Broadway. But no, I'm never, I would never even like, stay there for more than an hour. First of all, you haven't seen how beautiful and amazing the city of Baltimore is. And secondly, that is exactly why we planted a church in Baltimore. God sees this place. He has not forsaken this place. He hears its suffering, he knows its cries, and that's when he sends his people in. It's crazy to me. The Holy Spirit seems to call a lot of people to really comfortable places. I mean, the Holy Spirit just, it's odd to me. God's calling me to uh, the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, interesting. I mean, I'm sure Jesus is needed there. Yeah, but there's a lot of you there. Like, the Holy Spirit hasn't probably forgotten about Baltimore, has he? Or Boston, or L.A., or, or, or Shanghai, or, or unreached people groups around the world. I'm not trying to guilt you if you live in the suburbs of Atlanta, maybe a little bit. But my, <laughs> my point is, is that God is still hearing weeping today. He's still hearing the cries in the orphanage that no one else is hearing or everyone else is ignoring. God still hears the cries in the foster care system in Baltimore where there's not enough parents to adopt all these kids. God's still hearing the whimpers in the senior, in the senior home where an old person has no one to visit them. He's hearing the weeping going throughout our city and all these different, over 300 neighborhoods in Baltimore, many, most of which do not have a thriving local church. And he's sending us there, friends. God hears the cries of the world. He puts those cries on his people's hearts and he turns those cries into our ministry. But way too many Christians, and I'll be honest, I love you and I say this because I love you, way too many Christians in our church are too busy going to where the world is rejoicing than to care about where the world is weeping. We're much more interested in where the best restaurants are, the coolest entertainment is, the hippest venues, than we are where the most weeping is happening. And many of us are way too focused on our career ladder than we are the ladder to heaven. We don't see our career as a... As a as a, a service to God, but a way that we get to just get what we want. Accolades, affirmation, money, 
And what a tragedy it will be to see all of our work evaporate in an instant when Jesus returns. And what's left is only the memory of the time we didn't spend pressing into what most broke his heart. And God loves us too much to let us waste our lives, friends. And that's why he's given us Exodus 2 through 4. And if you, hear, if you don't hear anything else in this message, hear me. Listen to me right now. Look up and listen to me. Look at me right now. Every single person in this room has been specifically gifted by God and prepared by God to be sent somewhere. Every single one of you. Church is not the Pastor Adams show featuring Bill Velp every now and then. You... God is saying through this text and throughout the scriptures that church is an army of ordinary people who have been provided for by Christ, forgiven by Christ, molded into the likeness and image of Christ, and then used by Christ to be his hands and feet in this, in wherever he's planted you. The church of Jesus Christ is not built on the talent of a few, but on the sacrifice of many. And Moses jumps into the game here. Can I challenge you to jump in the game with him? Give your life to actually what matters, what God's hearing people cry about. God hears the pain of the world, specifically his people. He remembers his covenant, and he sends Moses there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. Moses is busy, right? And he comes to Horeb, called the mountain of God. It's called the mountain of God because this is where God meets him. This is actually the same mountain scholars say that Moses will later receive the Ten Commandments. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses immediately walks in, sees this burning bush. It's something mysterious. It's a physical bush that's on fire, but not being consumed or burned away. And this is actually a picture of the never-ending power of God. God upholds the universe, and he never runs out of fuel. He's inexhaustible. He's appearing as a fire, the text tells us. Now, this is common in the Old Testament. Later in Exodus, we'll see God appear as a fire many other times. Uh, As a pillar of fire, he leads them to Mount Sinai. As a pillar of fire, uh, he appears in the tabernacle. And at different points throughout the Bible, we see God appear as fire, such as the day of Pentecost, you know, the tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. In Deuteronomy, God calls himself a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews says that we should worship God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. And fire is an appropriate illustration of who God is because it's simultaneously inviting and terrifying. It's inviting, right? Like if you, if you see a fire pit outside in the fall, you want to sit by it. We want to drink cider by it. Maybe if you're crazy, smoke a cigar by it. It's just nice. But at the same time, it's terrifying, especially if you have kids like mine who lack the DNA that produces fear because they just jump into it for some reason. They touch it. And I, I can't relax by the fire because they're like all running around it, touching it. Fire is, as you know, simultaneously inviting and terrifying. Fire is to be taken seriously. We saw this a few weeks ago. There's a fire in our area, in our neighborhood, that consumed a whole street, and, the, and it was all over the internet. 
We take fire seriously, and we take God seriously. He is holy. You can't just stroll up into a fire, and you can't just stroll up into the presence of God. So why God says in verse 5, if you look at the text, Exodus 3, he says to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It wasn't holy before God was there, but the minute God was there, it became holy. And Moses can't come, a human cannot come near a holy God. He's too sinful. Which, this again shows us the sweetness of the gospel, doesn't it? Hebrews 4 says that it is through Christ, our great mediator, that we can now draw near to God with confidence and receive mercy and grace in times of need because Jesus was perfect and went there in our place. And we now have his access. But this is before Christ, and so Moses is facing the presence of God, and he takes his shoes off. Verse 6 says, he also hides his face, and he was afraid. This is what everyone does when they see God. Even the angels in heaven, the scriptures say, cover themselves in their wings and hide their face from the glory of God. Now, you and I as Christians don't need to hide our face. We don't need to take off our shoes. Please do not do that. Why? Because the Bible says that in Christ, God is our daddy. I don't know, you saw my son here a moment ago. He doesn't need to hide his face around me. I want to see his face. He doesn't need to be afraid around me because I'm looking out for him. I do prefer he takes off his shoes, though, when he's around me. But the idea here is, though, friend, if you are in Christ, you have an intimacy with God, and yet you should have a piety before God. Privately, you should show reverence to God, like Moses does here. However, whatever that looks like for you. For me, it means bowing, like falling on my face before him. When's the last time you bowed before God? Corporately, this means for us, we come into this place with a sense of reverence. We like to have a good time, we like to joke, but at the same time, we're worshiping the living God who is a consuming fire. And there are ways we can express that reverence. You can sing really loudly during the songs to tell him how much you love him. You can express this reverence by coming to the service, not just to take, but to give, maybe even to serve. You can take communion with reverence, knowing that the the Lord's Supper reflects God's covering of you, His covenant over you, and you repent of sin and, and, and express thanks as you take the elements. You can give the first fruits of your paycheck as a sign of reverence. You can respond vocally during the proclaimed word. You're allowed to talk when I talk, you know, you're allowed to say amen. You have to say, come on, let's go. Like, that is a way of saying, yes, I revere what is being said. I agree with what is being said. Even raising your hands or clapping or falling on your face during the service. You're allowed to fall on your face during the service. These are all ways corporately we can express this reverence that Moses expresses here before the living God. And this is where Moses and God meet for the first time. And like what happens in most introductions, there's an exchange of names. Now, God already knows Moses' name. He knows your name as well. And Moses responds when God appears to him, like Isaiah and Samuel respond when they meet with God. Moses says, here I am, which is essentially, here's all of me, God. What do you have to say to me? Is that the posture of your heart? And it's here that God gives Moses his call to go to the weeping places of the world. He says, verse 7, I've heard Israel's cry in Egypt. I know their sufferings, and I'm sending you to deliver them. 
And so Moses is like, great, I've been wanting Israel to be freed from Egypt. What's the plan? God looks at him and says, you're the plan. I'm sending you. And this hasn't changed, by the way. God looks at Baltimore City, and he's like, you're the plan. You are God's strategy to redeem this city. I'm sending you to save my people from something slavery to something worship. So God wants to use Moses. He hears the cries of the world. He sends Moses there. And what does Moses do? He does what we do. He makes a bunch of excuses. He tries and weasels his way out of God's call. God makes a way for him. Now, this section is a lot of text. I'm going to breeze through it because it's just Moses whining the whole time. (laughs) There are generally five excuses here. If you read chapters 3 and 4, you're going to notice Moses constantly says, but, or have you considered, or I'm not sure. But what you need to know and what you see here is how God is enough. Moses is insufficient, but God is self-sufficient. It's God's omnipotence that matters, not our incompetence. It's his power that matters, not our lack of it. And God here responds to each of Moses' excuses and questions with statements about his own sovereignty and power that overcomes all our weakness. And this section is so deeply encouraging to the Christian who's called to something that you feel like is beyond yourself. The key is take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off your failures and weaknesses and get a big vision of God. And that will send you out with confidence. God wants to use you. You make excuses, God makes a way. What's the first excuse Moses makes? First is lack of credentials. He says to God, well, who am I that I would be the one to rescue Israel from Egypt? Moses is like, have you seen my resume? There's one line item. Shepherd, 40 years, in the wilderness. Like everyone else, I am proficient in Excel. No, you're not. Stop. Like, I'm not, I'm not the guy for this. How am I going to defeat a global superpower? I mean, just imagine if this happened today. God's like, I want you to rescue my people from the world's strongest empire. This is like a, a, plunge, a plumber declaring war on the United States of America. Like, going up to the president and saying, with your plunger, Mr. President, a bush in the wilderness that wasn't actually burning, but was burning, told me to tell you, you got to let everyone go. And I know this is going to collapse the world economy and destroy your way of life, but you should do it. I get what he's, where he's coming from here. This is what God says, verse 12. This is all you need. I'll be with you. Moses is going to say later, God, I don't want to go if you don't go with me. Because he eventually learns, wherever God goes, power follows. Walls fall down. Slaves get freed. The lost get saved. Do you know this is the same promise Jesus Christ has given you in the Great Commission? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. We have the same promise, maybe even a better promise, but we ain't going, are we? Who am I? You see, it's not our wisdom or our strength that matters. It is the strength and wisdom of the one who sent us. Christianity is a group project, and we get Jesus' grade, and we get Jesus' power, and we just go along for the ride. 
Lack of credentials. Who am I? The second thing he says is lack of content. I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, I, I'm not good on stage. Um, I, don't, I don't really know what's going to convince Pharaoh to do this. Moses says in verse 13, who should I say sent me? Like, do you have a business card? Do you have a LinkedIn profile? Like, can I, can we take this burning bush show on the road so I can show Pharaoh, you know, this whole thing? I can't just tell Pharaoh I heard a voice from a bush in the wilderness and it, that'll work. Who should I say you are? God responds, verse 14. This is actually one of the most mysterious verses in the entire Bible. You notice if you read it in your Bible, it's in all caps because it's emphasized. It's important. God said to Moses in response, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is our first introduction to the Hebrew term Yahweh, which is a word in the Hebrew that simply means to be. If you looked up Yahweh in the the dictionary, the definition right next to it would be Yahweh. It's this like stunning circular definition about the grandeur and transcendence of God. God is saying in this really unique way, I have been who I've always been, and I'm not shaped by anything else, and I will always be who I will always be. You're not supposed to grasp it. Just like if you try and grasp how long eternity is, your brain starts hurting. We we are not supposed to fully comprehend Yahweh. We're supposed to be brought to our knees by Yahweh. And this response, again, is what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Did you know this? He says to us, go make disciples. Behold, I am with you always. God's telling Moses here, just tell them, you're with me, you're with the I am, I'll take care of the rest. And friend, that's really what we're doing in evangelism. Going in the power of Jesus Christ to tell people about Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus Christ is the one doing the work. Our job is just to tell them. Like, I I challenge you, go to somebody you know who's not a Christian, a friend, a coworker, somebody, your neighbor, and tell them, hey, Jesus told me to tell you about him. Can I tell you about him? That's your job in evangelism. And he somehow does the work through all of it. And yet we make excuses. I don't know what to say. Who am I to do it? Moses has lack of credentials. He says, who am I? Lack of content. What should I say? Third excuse, lack of confidence. He says, no one's going to believe me. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. Now, God does tell him, the elders of Israel will believe you. But Moses still lacks trust and confidence in God. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You were having hallucinations or something. But God responds, chapter 4, verse 4. What the Lord gives Moses is a cleared, despite his clear, delayed obedience, is three signs. He gives Moses the sign of the snake, the sign of leprosy being cleansed, and the sign of the Nile being turned into blood. Now, these signs are not parlor tricks. God's not trying to be David Blaine in Vegas. He's not trying to make you go, woo, cool. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to teach Moses something through these three signs. The first sign is the sign of the snake. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, what is significant about this sign is that on Pharaoh's crown in Egypt, 
there was a hooded cobra that faced out towards the enemies of Egypt. This cobra called Urias was a sign of Egyptian power and sovereign rule. And so the Egyptians believed that whenever Pharaoh put on this crown and this cobra unfurled its head towards its enemies, Pharaoh became some sort of living God, the most powerful God in all of Egypt. And it was this God that Moses had ran from. It was this God that killed all of Israel's sons. It was this God who was enslaving Israel. And God says, let me show you what I think of this snake. Grab it by the tail and see what it does. What is being communicated here? God is saying, Pharaoh has no power. That snake can't touch you. It's helpless. When you touch it, it becomes a staff. When you touch Pharaoh's power, it becomes my tool for my good. Verse 6, then he gives him the sign of leprosy to counteract this doubt. He says, put your hand inside your cloak, verse 6. And Moses puts his hand inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside the cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. It was healed. Now, leprosy in this period of human history was a big deal. It was the scourge of humankind, and there was no answers, no medication, no help when you had leprosy. The only answer was lockdown. You had to be separated from all society. I mean, think March 2022, COVID just hit. That feeling is leprosy in Egypt. And historians tell us that Egypt put a ton of its wealth and its brightest minds trying to cure this highly contagious disease that was ravaging the ancient world, and there was, little to no, there was no success. And once again, God says, hey, you know what Egypt has been spending centuries trying to do? They've poured out all their gold, they poured out all their might, all their wisdom, they put their best minds on trying to heal this disease. Put your hand in your cloak, pull it out. On his hand was a death sentence. This is stage four leprosy. Moses is probably freaking out, like, I'm done. God says, put your hand back in your cloak. It's restored again. What Egypt could not do for centuries, the Lord did in seconds. And again, God is saying, I, don't, I just want to keep pointing this out. Moses, with all of his inadequacies, with all his fears, and with all his history of failure, will overcome this dreaded disease by the power of God flowing through him. Third excuse, lastly, the sign of the Nile. Look at verse 9, or uh, the third sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it out on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, this is significant because the Nile was the source of all of Egypt's wealth. It created soil that produced all of its crops. It brought in the fish. Almost all of the power of Egypt was centered around the Nile. And in the ancient world, the Nile and Egypt were synonymous. Uh, Egypt is the Nile, and the Nile is Egypt. In fact, Egyptians constantly sang and worshipped the Nile. They called the, the Nile the mother. And God says, okay, the Nile is Egypt, right? If they won't listen to these first two signs that show them my power overcomes them, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a cup and hold it out and fill it with Nile water. And just for a moment, think about the faith this is going to require. You're standing in front of Pharaoh with a cup. This guy can kill you any moment. The elders of Israel don't know who you are. I mean, this is a huge faith move. It's water, and you have to, it's not blood in the cup. You've got to pour it out, and it becomes blood. I mean, that is a huge faith move in front of all these people to pour out water, hoping it actually works. I mean, just imagine if the Lord asked you, go up to your really mean, harsh, abusive boss, grab some coffee, and pour it out on his desk, and it'll become blood. Like, that is a huge faith move. If it doesn't work, you're going to get fired. You're filing for unemployment later that day. 
And I think this is a great picture of the Christian faith, that in front of people, you are stepping out in faith, taking your life, pouring it out, and trusting God will come through and do a miracle through it. I want to ask you, is your life marked by steps of faith like this, just pouring yourself out, trusting God will do something with it? God says, Moses, if you do this, it'll work. Now, you might be sitting here like, this is great for Moses. Moses had three signs. Moses had a clear call. You might respond by saying, well, if I'd, I'd step out in faith like this too if I had signs like Moses had signs. If God appeared to me like he appeared to Moses. But brother and sister, can I encourage you that you have an even greater sign than Moses did? Our sign is an empty tomb. Our sign is Jesus God in flesh, coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying, and then leaving an empty grave as his receipt. We go knowing God sent us and God is working because Jesus is alive and he is not dead. So we can pour out our lives like he did. Fourth excuse. Moses has said, I don't have the credentials, I don't have the content, I don't have the confidence, and I certainly don't have the competence. I'm not eloquent enough, he says. Maybe you're saying this this morning. Moses said to verse 10, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now, what exactly was Moses' speaking problem? We don't know for sure. It could have been psychological. Maybe he was shy and scared to speak uh, in public settings. Uh, Maybe public speaking scares you. It's your biggest fear. That's what some commentators believe was happening here. In fact, you know, the the famous preacher John Piper got seized in public speaking class because he refused to speak in front of people. Lord, overcome that. Some believe it wasn't psychological but educational. Moses was saying, I'm not competent for this because I'm not smart enough. Maybe he thought he was too old. Uh, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, said he was too young. It could have been translational, Moses has been out of Egypt for 40 years now, so he's like, I'm rusty on my Egyptian. I can't speak to Pharaoh. Uh, could you imagine Moses before Pharaoh, like, trying to Google translate? Like, hey, how do you say that? Like, hey, let my, let my people, people go, go. Like, it, it, I don't know Egyptian, God. I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not up to the task. I tend to think, though, that he's saying he's incompetent because of a physical speaking problem, that he literally was slow of speech. He had a stutter. Which actually, our kids director who stood up early, he has uh, a stutter as well. He's actually written a great article on how God has overcome and used uh, this physical uh, struggle to, to glorify his name. And you can talk to Josh after the service about it. And Moses is literally saying the same thing. Um, well, not at the beginning. He's like, I'm not competent. I can't do this. I have a stutter. How does God respond? And here's what's so great. Throughout these two chapters, particularly here, The Lord never speaks to Moses' self-esteem. Do you notice that? He never does it. He never goes, now Moses, don't talk to yourself like that, little guy. Come on, man. (laughs) He doesn't say, Moses, you were a prince. Treat yourself like a prince, young king. (laughs) You know how few people, how few Israelites were princes once? Like, you're you're the guy for the job, Moses. God never says that. He, He doesn't say, you are one of the smarter men I've ever created. God does nothing to soothe Moses' low self-esteem because, honestly, the more you focus on your own self-esteem, the lower it plummets. God gives him what he needs throughout this entire scene, and that is a picture of God that transcends his low self-esteem. 
God doesn't go, come on, buddy, you could do it. I believe in you. No, no, no. He says, you're right. You are horrible. I've listened to you talk. It's bad. Like, everyone, I love you more than anyone. And can you limit it 15 minutes? Like, I can't go 30 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, I can't listen to you, but I'm going to flow through you. I'm able. I'll be the power. He says, don't look at your mouth. Look at the maker of your mouth. And friend, you may sit here saying the same thing. And do you really think the God of the universe needs your skill set? He formed you together in your mother's womb. He's sustaining your breath and your heartbeat. And do you think he's like, yeah, I can't use her? God says to Moses here, I formed you, I molded you, all for my purpose. Do you think I don't know about your perceived weakness? Do you think I didn't give you your perceived weakness? It is precisely because of those weaknesses I want to use you so I get all the glory. And Moses throughout is like, I, I, I. God finally says, I am. Look at me. And so, friends, we go as well with our abilities as well as our disabilities, knowing God is with us. Last excuse, we've seen credentials, content, confidence, competence. Last is he has a lack of commitment. Finally, he ends by saying, send someone else, God. This final excuse is not so much as an excuse as it is Moses' desperate plea to get out of the responsibility of God's call. Can someone else do this? That's his excuse. Every one of his questions has been answered in a stunning way, and now he says, verse 13, please, Lord, send someone else. God gets angry in verse 14. But he's also gracious here. And he gives Moses an encourager or a helper. God does this a lot. When he gives someone a call, he often sends them a friend or a partner, a Silas, a Barnabas, a Ruth. God gives Moses Aaron. God says, let Aaron help you. God meets every need of Moses, fulfills every excuse. And so as we close, we see a lot of ourselves in Moses, don't we? In Christ, God has providentially protected us from death and the grave and Satan. He has forgiven us despite our flaws. Maybe we haven't committed manslaughter, but we have hated people and murdered them in our heart. God has molded us by not giving us what we want and causing us to wait. And we're more like Jesus because of it. And God wants to use us. He hears the cries of the world. He's sending us there. We make excuses, but God is making a way. And so, friend, you have a decision to make as we close. Is God going to be the Lord of your life? A God that's sending you and using you for his purposes and mission on the earth? Or is God going to be your butler? Are you in glad submission to the great I am? Or do you want to have a picture of God where you ring a bell and he goes and gets you a pillow and a snack? And the invitation this morning is to know this consuming fire, to know this God, and to worship him and submit our lives to him. And we will not attempt great things for God if we don't have a great vision of him. And no matter how weak we are, friends, it is not a surprise to God. So we can stop making excuses and we can start trusting his promises and start going for his glory. What an encouraging passage of scripture. Look at who God uses. He wants to use you too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I recognize that the, the regular American Christian, of which I am one, loves comfort, hates the wilderness, loves our purposes, 
ignores your purposes. God, I pray this morning that we would get a clear vision of who you are, the great I am, Yahweh. We will fall on our face before your holiness and know that you have answered and, and given solution to all of our excuses and that we would go wherever the world is weeping, wherever it is you've, you've sent us, whatever you've put on our heart, help us to go. May this church be full of members helping the poor, helping the orphan, reaching the lost, loving this city, living for your purposes. Do immeasurably more through us than we think we can do by ourselves. It may be impossible now, and it may be difficult tomorrow, but at the end it will be done. We trust you. Do in us what you did with Hudson Taylor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.